0: A week from tomorrow, if you happen to be one of those people that turns on the television in the morning, you're going to hear somebody reading a list of names. And the names that you're going to hear are names that uh, my guess is for the majority of you in the room, you, you don't know. But these names are being read because of something that happened for the majority of them to them. These are the victims. These are those that lost their lives, those that died in the attacks on the World Trade Centers in September 11th of 2001. But one of those names in particular that maybe you'll hear if you're listening around the time that they get to this portion of the the list is the name Rick Rescorla. I didn't know Rick. I didn't even know about Rick until this weekend, or this week as I was planning and, and preparing and studying for this morning. But Rick Roscola was a, an amazing individual, an amazing man. He was a, a Vietnam veteran himself who then went on afterwards in the private sector to work for Morgan Stanley, and he worked in the South Tower as head of security for Morgan Stanley. And after the attack in 1993 that killed six people in the basement of the North Tower, Rick began to sound the alarm with the authorities at the World Trade Center saying, we need to be ready. This is going to happen again. We are a target and we need to be prepared and know how we're going to get these people to safety. Well, the authorities didn't move much on Rick's counsel and advice and so Rick did what he could and that is he looked at his company Morgan Stanley and he went to the higher-ups there and said we want to be prepared we need to be prepared I feel a burden for this and so being 22 floors up in the south tower uh, and I think they were three or four floors at that uh, Rick began to take measures into his own hands and so Rick would often be seen around the office carrying a tiny bullhorn with him and he would be uh, announcing evacuation drills for the employees there at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. And so he would uh, take the bullhorn and he'd say evacuation drill, evacuation drill and, and they'd stop what they're doing and they would get up and they would go and he made sure that every single employee on the, in that building on those floors knew their escape route. He made sure that they knew where the doors were. He made sure that they knew what to do in case of an attack because Rick had a premonition that This could happen again. Well, that morning, when the first plane hit the tower, Rick immediately sprang into action. He grabbed his bullhorn, and he began to do as he had done all the rest of the times with the evacuation drills. He got on the bullhorn, and he went floor to floor with those in his company. He said, it's time to go. We've got to get out. And he began to lead them out. And as he was going down the stairwell, so calm was Rick during this process that he was even singing songs to the employees as they're making their way down the stairwell to try to help keep everybody calm. On September 11th, Rick led 2,700 people to safety from the South Tower. Once he led his company out, they got about four to five blocks away because Rick understood what was at risk, which was the towers actually coming down. So once he led those 2,700 people away from the towers, Rick turned around and went back And he teamed up with a group of firemen and he said, I know the buildings, I know what we need to do, I'm going back in with you. And he went back in the South Tower with the firefighters and he was never seen again because the second plane hit and the tower collapsed. And so a week from Monday, you may hear the name Rick Rescorla. My guess is for those 2,700 people that Rick rescued, 9-11 hits different for them than maybe it does for you and me. They think about it in a different weight, a different gravity, with a different measure of gratitude for someone that you and I never met. But someone for them meant everything, literally everything. Rick managed to call his wife before the South Tower collapsed and said, if something happens to me, I just want you to know that you made my life. How about for his wife? You think 9-11 hits different for her too, doesn't it? 9-11 9-11 for those individuals is an invitation to remember Rick Rescorla. It's an invitation every single year, though I'm sure it's way more than yearly that they think about him. But it's an invitation every year for them to stop and remember what he did for them. And to be grateful, and to be thankful. And I'm sure also for them, it's that opportunity for them to consider their own lives and say, what am I doing with the life that this man spared for me how am i demonstrating my gratitude even in the life that i'm now living this morning as we gather as a church body to observe our first communion together this act that we do is also an invitation for us to look back you and me to look back and reflect on the single greatest act of sacrifice that you or i have ever experienced It's an invitation to look back with gratitude and gratefulness at the cross of Christ. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're gonna begin in verse 17. Paul writes this, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. He's writing to the church at Corinth here, and he's saying, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal one goes hungry another gets drunk what do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing what shall I say to you shall I commend you in this no I will not there's a problem facing the church of Corinth and that is that they were divided they were factionalized here and Paul had already addressed that earlier in the book But here he returns to it as he's addressing or getting ready to address the act of communion. Because the act of communion we read about there in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, just one chapter back, says this, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Communion is meant to be a unifying act. It's meant for the body of Christ. And what was taking place here is the Corinthians were coming and in chapter 11, verse 18, he says, I hear there's divisions among you. Paul had identified and indicted these divisions back in 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse three. He said, you're still of the flesh for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And so Paul had dealt with this and said, this is not right, what you're doing is wrong and here he's saying it and it's carrying over even into the church even as you prepare for the lord's supper communion was meant to be a time of remembrance remembering the sacrificial humiliation of christ on our behalf and the corinthians had made it an opportunity for arrogant selfishness in the early church the lord's supper was preceded by what was known as a love feast It was a meal that the church would come together and eat together. This was not communion, but this was the the pre-communion dinner that people would have. Kind of like an early potluck, if you can picture it that way. And so people would bring food together and the wealthier would bring more so that those that didn't have as much could also eat and also partake of the food as well. And what was going on in the Corinthian church is nobody was waiting on anyone else. Everybody was showing up with what they brought and they were just diving straight in. And so sometimes people would show up who didn't have anything and they came to this meal expecting to be able to to have food with their family, their church family, and they showed up and there was nothing for them. Meanwhile, there were people that were intoxicated and overstuffed because they had eaten so much. Paul's saying you are heading into the Lord's Supper from an attitude of selfishness and self-centeredness and you're undermining the exact thing that it's meant to be about. In Corinth, the meal had become distorted and perverted by the selfishness of the body. He indicts them, he says, and asks them the question in verse 22, he says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Do this at home. Don't get drunk. But, but eat your food and, and, and have this meal at home and then come to the church for the good of the body. Don't come to the church to make it all about just you getting what you need. Come here to be selfless in preparation, especially for the Lord's Supper, for communion. See, this ordinance of communion isn't merely individual. It is that, and we'll touch on that in a moment, but it's also about us as a church body, as a church family, right here as we gather this morning, taking these elements together as an expression of our unity in Christ, this unity that was procured and bought by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. Our first point this morning is this, respond together If communion is an invitation, which it is, then as we respond to that invitation, the first thing that we need to understand is we respond corporately. We respond together as a church body, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Communion is one of two ordinances in the evangelical church. The first ordinance in the evangelical church that we might think of is baptism. Baptism is not a a communal activity, although it is as we gather together to witness it, but you as an individual are the one being baptized. And if you think about baptism, baptism is something done by a, a believer to a believer, a professing follower of Jesus, and that signifies, that illustrates his entrance into the body of Christ. And that's why we do baptism. But you don't get baptized monthly, do you? This is not a repeated ordinance, in other words. You're baptized one time. And that's sufficient. Communion, on the other hand, is something that we do regularly. And you may have grown up or been to churches in the past where communion is practiced weekly. Some of you have come from churches where it's practiced quarterly. We're going to do it monthly here at Compass Bible Church, most likely on the first Sunday of the month if we can control the calendar as such. Scripture gives no direct command as to how often you should observe communion. It does say that we should, but all it says is as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So communion, in other words, is the second ordinance, and it's different from baptism because we do it repeatedly. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered, okay, why do we do communion repeatedly? Why isn't it just something that's done at the beginning, just like baptism, and then you're, you're done? You've communed, and now you're set. Well, it's because of the purpose of communion. And building on this idea of our corporate gathering, what do we do here corporately? Why do we gather on the first day of the week? Why do we gather on Sundays? Why don't we gather on Tuesdays? You're like, because I have work on Tuesdays. That's not not really the answer. The answer is because we follow the pattern of the early church, because the early church began gathering on Sunday because they were marking the day that Christ rose from the dead. So they were gathering as a celebration to remember his resurrection. Well, As we celebrate communion together on a monthly basis, what we are doing is we're remembering the crucifixion. We're remembering what it is that gives us a commonality together. It's part of the reason why this is done in this context. It's part of the reason why communion is not something that you do by yourself at home. It's not something that you do with your friends as they come over for a meal, because it's something that Christ gave to the church to be done by the church. And so communion is a corporate expression of our unity. And we look back on the cross as that which bonds all of us together. I mean, think about this room for a minute and how different all of us are. Some of you are born and raised in Texas. And you're sitting there going, man, there's California in the room, I can feel it. And you're not wrong. We brought a lot of us with us. Some of you have jobs in the corporate sector, some of you have jobs in the the blue collar sector, some of you have uh, moved here from other countries, some of you grew up poor, some of you grew up wealthy, some of you grew up with uh, two parents, some of you grew up with one parent. There's such a vast variety and difference of people here in this room. What in the world unites us? What in the world brings us together? It's that which we're going to remember this morning. It's the cross of Christ. And it's why we do this corporately together. It's why it's significant for the church to do this together. We've, we went to the uh, Prosper High School homecoming game on Friday night, and uh, we got there late, so my wife and I got to sit in the student section. <laughs> that was fun. We won't be doing that again. <laughs> but anyways, as, as the, uh, the teams take the field, there, there's two ways to take the field as a football team. There's the one way, which is they, they just run out and they run through the banner and they, they run through the field. And it's, it's, it's just a, what is that? That's a group of individuals all wearing the same color, but they're just individuals all running as fast as they can through the, the, the banner. There's another way to take the field. And that is, and I, my son and I were watching highlights on Saturday morning of some local high school football teams. And a lot of them will come out and they come out arm in arm together as the team. And they walk out and they don't run out of the tunnel. They just walk out with their arms linked together. My son said, Dad, why do they do that? I said, well, they're demonstrating their unity. They're saying we are a team. We're together in this. Church, when we take communion, that's what we're doing in part. We're together as the body of Christ going, this is what unites us. I mean, if you think of those 2,700 people that Rick led to freedom that day, to safety that day when they gather together think about how different they are especially now as you look back what has it been 22 years almost they probably have gone in many 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 different directions and yet they can come back together in a single room and all have something in common by looking back to what Rick did for them and that will unite them together y'all we have something greater even than what Rick did Rick's changed their temporary existence. He gave them some extra years physically. Jesus' death on the cross gave us eternal life. And that sacrifice means everything. And so as we take these elements this morning, what we do is we take them remembering that and responding together because that is what unites us together. But it is remembering it is remembering, and if you look in verses 23 through 26, this is where Paul shifts the focus to now as he talks about communion. is he's saying, look, this is not good what you're doing because this is what we're supposed to be doing with communion, and that is looking back and remembering what Christ has done. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul begins in verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. We don't have anything specifically recorded for us in the scriptures where Jesus appeared to Paul to tell him about communion. But what we can infer from this is Paul probably understood this or received this from Peter or James or John or one of the other apostles who imparted this to John or to Paul because they were there in the upper room with Jesus. But this is a note on the authority of the apostles here as well because Paul attributes that directly back to the instruction that he received from Jesus himself. So likewise, as you and I receive the instruction from the apostles in the word of God, we are instruction, receiving instruction not from Paul and James and Peter, but from the Lord himself. But what did Paul receive from him? Well, he receives the instructions that reflect what the disciples witnessed and heard for themselves in the upper room. This is recorded for us a few places in the Bible in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. This is the, specifically the, the breaking of the bread and the, the giving of the cup. In Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 24. And then it's also described for us in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. And I want to read for you Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, because I think this reflects most closely what we find in 1 Corinthians. Luke chapter 22, verse 19 says this, he took bread, speaking of Jesus, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read similarly, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then verse 25, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If I can touch briefly here on the concept of the new covenant this is something picked up from Jeremiah chapter 31, wherein the new covenant is promised to, uh, to come. And the new covenant would be the time when the, the forgiveness of sins would be provided in a, a way different from the Mosaic law and from what the Mosaic law had ever provided for them. And so Jesus here with the cup is inaugurating and introducing the new covenant. But the word that I want you to focus on here that appears twice in 1 Corinthians 11 is the word remembrance. Remembrance. Communion is an opportunity to remember what the cross means for us as corporately as we just talked about, but also for you and me as individuals. It's an opportunity to remember and to look back on the cross. It's it's not about a a mystical ritual or tradition or some experience that you're supposed to have and get the warm fuzzies when you hold the the juice and the bread in your hand. It's It's a remembrance, it's a symbol, it's a memorial for us to reflect and to look back at the cross and this memorial should fill our minds with thoughts of our salvation. So as we think about communion as an invitation and we respond together, the second way that we respond is in remembrance. Respond this morning in remembrance. There are a variety of of approaches to communion that you will encounter today, two of which I think we have to set aside as erroneous because they have problems biblically, and then two of those which are more compatible, one of which we fully embrace and really kind of a hybrid between the last two. But the approaches to communion that are out there, the first one is taught within the Catholic Church, and that is the doctrine of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation transubstantiation teaches that the body or rather that the bread and the wine in the catholic church we've got juice sorry to disappoint any of you out there but you're going to have some welches this morning but transubstantiation teaches that the 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 bread and the wine or the bread and the juice become substantially transubstantiation the body and blood of jesus that they literally after the blessing of the mass the blessing of the eucharist that the elements of the eucharist the bread and the wine transform into the literal body and blood of jesus now if you've ever been in a catholic church or observed catholic communion their elements look similar to ours and what they would say is the and here's what they call them okay the you didn't know you were getting a doctrine in catholic theology seminar today did you The bread and the wine, they call them the accidents of, that's just what they're referred to. We call them elements. They would call them accidents. I don't know why. That's just, that's what they call them. They would say those don't change in their appearance, but they literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. This belief was officially put forward at the Fourth Lateran Council in the 13th century A.D., Quoting from the Fourth Lateran Council, it says this, Within this church, the priest, Jesus Christ, is also himself the sacrificed. His body and blood are genuinely contained in the sacrament on the altar, beneath the outward appearances of the bread and wine. By God's power, the bread is transubstantiated into Christ's body and the wine into his blood. You say, well, Pastor P.J., where do they get that from? Well, they take that, uh, number one, they take that as an overliteralization of Jesus' words in the, the upper room when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. But they also take it from a passage like John chapter six. John chapter six, verse 53 says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They'll take that and say, well, he must have meant that literally. The problem is, in John chapter 6, the Lord's Supper had not been implemented yet. It had not been instituted yet. And so Jesus wasn't referring to that with his original audience. There was something else that he was driving at, a participation in him, something that we're even talking about here this morning. Mark Dever, who's a Baptist himself, commenting on this practice says this, the Eucharist, that is another word for communion, is understood to be a real and effective unbloody sacrifice, is what they'll call it an unbloody sacrifice. And that's because the Catholic Church believes with transubstantiation that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is an ongoing perpetual sacrifice. So that every time communion is taken, every time the mass is held and the Eucharist is served, that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is perpetuating. It's still going on. That's where we throw the flag. You're like, that's where you throw the flag? one of the main areas that we throw the flag here because what did jesus say on the cross right before he died it is it's finished it is finished what was finished the atoning sacrifice of jesus on the cross is done it's it's not an ongoing sacrifice In fact, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this and says, As Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor, verse 25, was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But... As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So transubstantiation is a a doctrine about communion, about what it is that we're remembering here that we have to set aside. It is not the ongoing sacrifice of Christ. Well, along came Luther, and he introduced a, a, a variance of this called consubstantiation. And in consubstantiation, he taught that the, the elements don't become the literal body and blood of Christ, but the literal body and blood of Christ become uh, with or alongside the elements. And so there's a mystical participation with the literal body and blood of Christ as they are, as the Lutheran church would teach, in, with, and under the elements. Problems of this view, see above. They would say that it's not that that Christ is continually being offered or continually being sacrificed, but the the presence of him with the elements still communicates the same notion that the work is not yet finished. The third variant here then would be the Reformed view. And the Reformed view would say, well, nothing changes about the elements, but Jesus is present in the ordinance of communion spiritually. That as we take the, the bread and we take the juice, that we are spiritually feasting on Christ that there's a spiritual experience that Christ is here with us, spiritually speaking. And we we would tend to agree with that, that Jesus is spiritually present with the church as the church gathers and observes communion. However, I do think there's a view that is more in keeping with the specific teaching that we find in the Bible, and that is the Baptistic view. That's our view, and that is that these elements are there primarily as a way to commemorate or memorialize the act of Jesus' death on our behalf, so that we would look back and remember the sacrifice, and that that would produce within us a a, a spirit of worship and gratitude and thanksgiving. And so, as we consider these views again, the first two, we have to set them aside and say that that's really not keeping with what Scripture teaches. But these final two, we would say, are within the bounds of Scripture, and we ourselves would primarily hold to this final view that this is a memorial that we observe together as the church body. Our pastor, ascending pastor, compared communion to an engagement ring, it's the promise. It's the thing that you look down, ladies, and you see and you remember that act that betrothed your future husband to you and you now await the full consummation of that. That ring serves as that that memorial of the relationship, of the covenant that you have entered into or that you're preparing to enter into. If we think back again to Rick in those 2,700, for them it might be every time they walk by a megaphone they might think of Rick. Or every time they take a flight of stairs, they might think of Rick. These things, they, they, they memorialize, they commemorate, they cause the mind to go back to something significant. And that's what we're doing with communion. As you take the bread, as you take the juice, you're remembering the body and the blood of Christ that was shed for you. You're remembering that he went to the cross for you, that he took your place on the cross, that he died for your sins, that his body was broken, his blood was shed for you and for me. In communion, these elements, as we pass them out, that's what we do. We respond to this invitation in remembrance. We remember the sacrifice of Christ. Again, it's not trying to work up some mystical experience within you. It's to do with the elements what the scriptures call us to do with the elements, which is to remember. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Because of the significance, though, of what we're remembering, it's important that we approach intentionally and carefully as the elements are distributed. As we keep going in First Corinthians chapter 11, we pick up in verse 27, it says this, "Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, whether you come together, or when you come together, rather to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions or instructions when I come. As we approach the the elements, we need to do so with intentionality and the gravity and the the sobriety that it, it would require. I imagine at Rick's memorial service, there were many who showed up there who had been those that he led out of that building. But imagine if one had showed up at his memorial and gone forward to, to greet his grieving wife, and while he goes up to, to greet her, he's on his phone talking to his car mechanic about getting the oil change on his car. And as he walks up to greet her and he's on the phone with her, he's, he's smiling at her and he has a sympathetic look on his face, but he's leaning over at the same time and talking to his mechanic. And then he goes up and, and mouths, thank you, thank you so much, and gives her a little side hug and then walks out the door. How do you think she would feel about that? He may do more for his waitress bussing his table at the restaurant than he would have just done for her, when her husband is the one that gave his life so that he could be there on his phone and have a car that he needed fixed to begin with. You see, we understand that there are moments that call for gravity and sobriety when we approach them. Approaching the grieving spouse of someone who just gave their life for you, I guess is that you would approach with seriousness and sobriety. You'd be mindful about things. You'd be even mindful about your appearance, not wanting to show up looking disheveled and to, to even communicate with how you look that maybe it, it doesn't matter what this man did for you. There's a call for reverence and sobriety for you and I as we take the elements of communion together as well. Reflecting back on this sacrifice, on what Christ has done for us and that's why Paul says, "For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself." Discerning the body, what is he talking about there? There's two things he could mean. Number one could be the, the body of Christ. He could be addressing the fact that the Corinthian church gathered divided and factionalized, and so he's writing to them saying, hey, "If you're if you're coming and you're coming causing division, and you're trying to take the Lord's supper while you're causing division." you're trying to remember something that's meant to draw us together as the family of God and and you're here factionalizing and judging other people, you're not discerning the body and there's judgment that is at risk there. That's option number one. The the second option though is it could be that he's saying, hey, if you're coming to take the Lord's Supper and you're not discerning your person, where you're at spiritually before the Lord, you're not reflecting on unconfessed sin that you need to, to bring before him. Or you're not thinking about being intentional with your thoughts and and worshiping him in the moment with the way that you're reflecting intentionally with your mind on what Christ has done for you. Maybe you're not discerning the body because you're overly casual in the way that you're approaching the elements. Paul says there's a danger there that could bring judgment. The judgment on the Lord in in Corinth was quite severe. He says some of you are ill and others are sick and some of you, you've died as a result of this. God takes this seriously, in other words. Verses 33 through 34, then, are, are Paul's specific instructions to the church there in Corinth because of their love feast, the, their meal that they were enjoying beforehand. He said, hey, we need to correct these things. But for you and I, again, communication, or communion. communion is an a, a invitation to unity. It's an invitation to remembrance. And then finally this morning, as we think about this, it's an invitation to self-examination. And that's the third way that we need to respond to this invitation. Together, corporately, in remembrance as we reflect on the cross, and then also in concert with that remembrance in self-examination. The threats to our observance of communion are no doubt different than they were for the Corinthian church, but they're there nonetheless. And we would do well to take time before we take the bread to make sure we are not coming in an unworthy manner. I was watching uh, something the other day. It was an Instagram reel that just grabbed my attention because I've got that kind of a a mindset, right? And it was this guy in Antarctica who's a scientist. And uh, I started following his account because it's just fascinating. And you're gonna ask me which account is it because I wanna follow it too. I don't know. You can go look for him on my account. I don't remember the guy's name. Um, But what grabbed my attention was this green check mark on a door. So what in the world is that green check mark there for? And that was the question that he was answering in the reel. So it happened that somebody else had the same question. So he said, A lot of you have asked, what's the green check mark there for? And so he began to explain it. He said, The green check mark reminds us to make sure that we're ready before we open that door, because that door led to Antarctica <laughs> on the other side of it. And so he walked us through the preparation that he has to go through to be ready to go outside. And so he took us into the, the, their locker room or whatever. He had his long johns on and he was like, okay, I, I get dressed. And he put on, and he put on like 17 layers by the time all was said and done, and including a face mask. And then he's got a hood and then he's got glasses and he's got goggles. And he said, I've got to make sure I've got no exposed skin because the temperatures are so severely cold there that any exposed skin immediately freezes and, and subjects itself to frostbite. So when he goes outside, he's got to make sure that he's fully ready now. He's a scientist working in Antarctica. I I assume he understands that it's cold outside and he needs to be ready, right? And yet, they put those green check marks on every single exterior door. Why? Because they know the risks if he goes out unprepared. So every time he comes to a door and he sees the green check mark, he thinks to himself, am I ready? Have I fully prepared myself for what's on the other side of this? the risk to you and me in taking communion in an unworthy manner is far greater than walking outside in Antarctica unprepared. And and I don't have a green check mark on all of our communion plates as they're passing by, but maybe you could envision one. Because as you take these elements, there needs to be the thoughtfulness about making sure that you're ready to participate in this Ordinance, this act, this meal, this right together along with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, let me identify three threats to communion that we need to be aware of. Three threats to communion that we should be on guard against. The first is this, and that is a lack of conversion. Communion is for the body of Christ, communion is an act that's for Christians. It's for believers. It's meant to be participated in by those who have participated in the greater act that it represents, which is the death of Jesus on our behalf. And so this morning, if you're here with us and, and you would say, well, I, I, I'm here, but I'm not a Christian. I'm, listen, I'm glad that you're here with us. But for your good, I'm going to ask and encourage you to, when the trays pass by, to just let them pass. Let them pass. This is a meal that is For believers. Parents, I'm I'm gonna encourage you to be wise and discerning with your kids in this regard as well. There is no age limit to salvation. You don't have to be a certain age to be saved. But just like with baptism, we don't want taking communion to be something that becomes a false sense of assurance for your children. To say, well, I take communion, so therefore I must be saved because I hear Pastor PJ preach about the fact that communion's for Christians. Mom and dad are okay with me taking communion. And so do you see all of a sudden we've made somebody who trusts in communion rather than trusting in Christ. So let's be sure with your kids that they are saved before we encourage them to partake in the elements. It's okay to have them let them pass. Even if they may be saved, it's okay in this one for you to kind of take that responsibility on your shoulders to say, you know what, right now we're gonna wait. We're gonna hold off. My wife and I have done that with our kids in the past. It's a good practice to do. Lack of conversion is a threat we've got to guard against. Second is a lack of confession a lack of confession. If what we're doing as a church body is remembering the death of Christ on our behalf for our sins, then certainly we don't want to come to the table with known, unconfessed sin in our life that we haven't brought before him and asked for this forgiveness. And the good news is, what we are observing is the answer to your unconfessed sin. Jesus has died for those sins. So you don't have to be afraid of bringing them to the light. You don't have to be afraid of confessing them. There is no sin beyond the grace of Jesus. And so you can confess that this morning in preparation to take these elements. If you've got sin this week that you've not dealt with between you and God as the elements are being passed and you're gonna have a couple of minutes to reflect, use that time to confess before him and to be prepared to take this ordinance. Third danger is a lack of concentration. I went for the seed just to be a little bit Baptist for us this morning. Here's what I mean by this. A lack of intentionality. A lack of concentration on what we're doing. Maybe you're checking your phones. The Cowboys don't kick off until next week, and so you don't have to worry about whether or not they're losing until next Sunday, okay? (laughs) Plus, they kick off later out here. I won't preach that long, I promise. Or maybe it's a text message that comes through, an email comes through, whatever. Put your phone down, put it away. Your mind, discipline your thoughts, to say, okay, I want to focus right now on the things in front of me. We don't want to be the guy on the phone talking to his mechanic when we come to the Lord's table. We want to be intentional and thoughtful and we want to concentrate on what we are doing. In just a few minutes, the ushers are going to come down with the elements. And as they pass them, you're going to notice that there's two cups. The one cup has the juice, that's the one on top, and the cup on the bottom has the the wafer. So you can just take one, and it's one and done. That way the the multiple... I used to always get nervous that I was gonna spill the the communion tray. You only have to be nervous that you're gonna spill the communion tray one time this morning. You're welcome for that. But you'll take one there. And again, if you feel like you need to let them pass, then let them pass. Let them pass, it's better to do that. But what should you be doing? Some music's gonna play, and during that time, take the time to confess any sin that you need to confess before the Lord. Take the time to, to contemplate, to think about the sacrifice of the cross. And the gravity of it. We take time every September 11th to think back on the gravity and the weightiness of what took place then. We need to feel this morning and work. And it it, it is work. But let's do the work to think back on to feel the sacrifice of the cross, the gravity of the cross. Also spend time thanking him for that sacrifice. Spend time thanking him that you're doing this here together with the church family and that we are together remembering this sacrifice. And here's one more thing. Thank him that these elements not only look back, but they look forward as well. I read from Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the lamb. You know, in the upper room, Jesus told his disciples, I'm not gonna eat or drink of this vine, the, the, the wine, again until I do it again in the kingdom. Church, for us, that's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb. And so as we take this, it's a rehearsal for that. And so we can think back and look forward, but let's do so with that intentionality. So as we get ready here, our ushers are going to come forward. You're going to hear the music begin to play. We're going to pass the the plates, and then I'll come back up here in a few minutes after we've had some time, and we will continue uh, with our communion service. What you hold in your hands is nothing mystical or or magical. I think we bought this from Christian book distributors. But what it represents is the greatest reality and truth that any of us could ever come to know. And so as we do this, what we do is we do this to remember and commemorate and drive that stake in the ground once more for ourselves to say, this is why I don't fear death. This is why I don't fear suffering. This is why I have hope. This is why I'm here today, sitting in this chair. This is why. Because of what Christ has done for us. The Apostle Paul said, for I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's eat together in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me let's drink together For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to keep doing that as the church until Christ comes back for us. I'm going to pray, and our worship team is going to come up for one last song. God, thank you for Jesus, for the death, for the cross, for the, the body and the blood. Thank you for the way that the gospel was designed, that it would come after us when we were, as Paul said, weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. Just like those in the tower on 9-11, they, they needed someone to rescue them. They needed someone to point them to this is where deliverance is. They needed to, to have a, a savior, humanly speaking. We, we were there spiritually speaking and needed a savior, and you gave us Jesus. And the deliverance that we've experienced in Christ is far greater than any human deliverance that our sins are forgiven, that we no longer have to fear death, that we no longer have to fear judgment, that we no longer have to fear hell because of Christ. What a glorious reality that is. What we do here, Lord, is serious, and it is sober, and we do feel the weightiness of it as we look back, but it's also joyful because of what it means that we are now forgiven, that now it doesn't matter from here on out what happens to us because we are safe and secure in Christ. And that day is coming and will come and will arrive according to your timetable when you will come back for your bride, the church, and you will call us to be with you and we will feast together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a day that will be. This is but a foreshadow. This is simply a foretaste of that day that is coming. When we will gather not just here corporately with these other brothers and sisters in this room, but all all of the brothers and sisters in Christ down throughout the ages and the, the ages to come, should you wait, all of us will be there and Jesus will be there and we will be celebrating with him. What a day that will be. And we thank you that the cross is that which has secured that day for us. We thank you for Jesus. It's in, in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>